don't give it like a the podcast platform of the Phenomenalist by Leopold Lambert. Today, the geological and technological landscape production of our cities with Liam Young. Hello everyone, today my guest is uh, Liam Young, who is uh, an architect and a storyteller and the director of uh, Tomorrow Thoughts Today, uh, founded uh, with, uh, Darryl, originally with Daryl Chan and, uh, and uh, the Unknown Fields, uh, founded with uh, Kate Davis. And we are recording this uh, conversation from uh, the Architectural Association in London. Uh, hello Liam. Hi. Hi. Uh, so we are going to explore a little bit your work today. <laughs> that is, that is very uh, extremely prolific. So I think I, I, I think this conversation will will reflect on that uh, rather than insisting on one particular project. Um, but maybe um, to because we we obviously need to start by one. We we can start with those. Uh, Uh, quite incredible exhibit uh, ex uh, explorations you're 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 you've been um, you've been organizing uh, since 2008 uh, with Kate Davis uh, unknown fields uh, maybe I have the list with me right now so I can I can say a little bit where you went with your students and uh, in, in the Galapagos in the Arctic Circle in the Australian desert in Chernobyl and Baikonur in Alaska in Roswell in Central America, in Madagascar, in China, and soon in Bolivia. And, uh, and each time in very specific um, uh, research fields that uh, we are going to talk about today. Um, could you maybe start by describing what was the, the sort of uh, uh, editorial line, if I may say, behind, uh, behind, behind all those trips? Like what, what uh, motivated... Uh, them and what continues to motivate them to to happen with your along with uh, all those uh, students and personalities you are invite there yeah i mean we essentially were interested in the contemporary city um and more specifically we're interested in the global and urban implications of emerging technologies so typically an architectural studio defines itself in a city like this like in london or in new york one of these world cities um and makes work based on singular sites um, that exist in that city or and various commissions in other cities like it around the world. But we're in a condition now where it's difficult to talk about sites as singular objects or things or singular points on the map. Um, the city is a networked object. So we're very much interested in the way that the city and its contemporary technologies cast shadows that stretch across the planet. And to understand a city like London or a city like New York, you have to go to all of the landscapes scattered around the world that that city produces. So Unknown Fields was set up as a, as a nomadic research studio that would travel around the world and seek out these territories, seek out these territories that are being produced by the technologies of our cities. Um, because we're interested in this idea that Um, huge parts of the world are being sacrificed in the service of our shining, gleaming futures. Um, and these landscapes are so often ignored or forgotten 
or only presented through very particular media narratives. So how can architects um, engage that conversation? How can we talk about sites, networks, infrastructures at the scale of the planet? How can we operate within them? How can we even recognize them? What's the role of the designer or the architect um, in that network context? Um, and that's really the central mission of, of what Kate and I do in Unknown Fields is, is you know, seek out these territories and kind of report back to a world that for the most part tries to ignore them. Um, and then we make work in these contexts that try and reveal conditions that are ever-present, that touch every single aspect of our lives, but that somehow are so vast that they start to become invisible. Mm. We make work that tries to demystify them, tries to cut through the complexity of these network conditions and tries to make them more visible, more visceral, and more of a part of our everyday lives. Um, so the decisions and choices we make in a city like this one um, can be understood within the context of the planetary-scaled mechanisms they set in motion. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you, you said that uh, those sites are produced by our cities. Uh, if, if I understand correctly, I, I think they are produced both before they, they what they produce arrived in the city and after like you're looking both at the, the sort of infrastructure of production <laughs> for the city and also the sort of uh, uh, the waste we'll say maybe uh, yeah that, I mean the, 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 these there's a reciprocal relationship between these landscapes and the city that you know they the city sets them in motion and is in, is in turn affected by them and they're affected in turn affected by the city um, so Did you say affected or infected? Maybe <laughs> both, right? <laughs> Probably a bit of <laughs> yeah. both, yeah. Um, so um, it's really a way of talking about um, the city not as a discrete object or to talk about something like the iPhone or a laptop not as a discrete object that, that sits in the pocket or that sits in a singular point, but to describe the the conditions that they affect and the conditions that are in turn um, uh, uh, affect them, right? So, um, you know, the uh, last expedition we went on last year was through the supply chain landscapes of China, where we were looking at this world of technologies, um, smartphones, laptops, the screen, um, which are so much a part of our experience of the contemporary modern city, certainly the Western city. Um, they, they mediate urban experience, they mediate social relationships, um, they're urban in their influence and scale. Um, but the rhetoric through which we talk about them is one of lightness, the, the, the cloud, um, words that suggest that these things are totally ephemeral and made of pixels and light and um, uh, glistening surfaces and thin, finely beveled aluminium. But actually the reality of these devices is they're, they're geological entities, they're landscapes. Um, the design decisions we make um, from an air-conditioned lab in Palo Alto in San Francisco about the latest-gen iPhone and how thin it's going to be actually sets in motion... Um, extraordinary scaled landscape effects um, across the other side of the world. Um, and we're interested in knitting 
these two worlds together, you know, the world of consumption and demand with um, the worlds of production, supply, logistics and infrastructure that actually create them. Um, and that's intense, an intensely architectural and spatial question, I think, right? Like how we, how we stitch these two things together. Um, and that's really what we try and do is talk about those relationships um, and to talk about that complexity and to try and do so in a way that isn't about constructing traditional relationships to guilt, um, uh, that we had, are told we should feel bad because, you know, when we buy the latest iPhone, despite how pleasurable it, 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 it is or how luminous the latest screen is, um, we're told to feel bad about those choices because of the, um, the, the things it sets in motion. We're much more interested in talking about the complexities of those relationships and trying to present those complexities in a way that um, makes them legible and makes them digestible so that we can actually start to work with them and design for them and design within them. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, I think in this regard, the two last trips you've been, um, the two last expeditions you've been leading are maybe very uh, illustrative in, um, so with uh, the, the minds of Madagascar as a sort of production of, uh, I mean, the, the ex exhumation of, uh, Of the um, of the very raw materials that that will lead uh, eventually to the next trip to China mm -hmm. last last uh, last summer, um, and I think it might be it might be worth it to really uh, describe what you've been doing. I mean, uh, many documents are available for every listeners who would be interested mm -hmm. to, to 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 see this, but I think it's probably it's probably worth uh, uh, taking the time to to really describe very. Uh, geographically, uh, the the sort of this exploration of the the geology of the of our objects, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, we um, have just finished a work um, called Rare Earthenware, which is a series of radioactive Ming vases um, that Kate and I have made um, from the material that we collected from a toxic lake um, that sits beside the world's largest rare earth mineral refinery. In Inner Mongolia, um, so this is an expedition which really was trying to explore the vast landscapes that are produced by our contemporary gadgets. Um, so we developed an expedition that would um, follow the unmaking of an object. So we started at the High Street in London, and we then went through the megaports of Asia. We travelled on board a cargo ship for three weeks um, across the South China Seas um, and then disembarked and followed the objects back to um, the wholesale markets and the logistic warehouses where they're packed and bought and traded and sold and then all the way back through the factory floors and the endless conveyor belt landscapes of um, Chinese electronics manufacturing and production then to the refineries where these tech, the, the material, the raw material for these technologies is actually turned into the magnets and resistors and capacitors and components for these things. Um, and then all the way back to the holes in the ground, the rare earth mines in Inner Mongolia, where our technologies really begin their lives. Right? As I said, they're, they're geological entities, um, but we don't think of them as that. We don't, we don't think of um, their origin stories in that way. We think of... Um, 
the, the genius of Jonathan Ivey in his um, uh, Crystal Palace in, in, in Silicon Valley. We don't think of the miner in Inner Mongolia digging the hole. Um, so it was really a, a journey that we then documented through a film um, to, to tell the story of this mean of production. Um, the film was shot um, with an embedded photographer that's come with us on a number of expeditions called Toby Smith. And he um, shot each of these locations on a robotic tripod head that, that rotated with this measured speed, um, almost the same speed as a conveyor belt from one of the electronics factories. So we were able to stitch together every site from along this supply chain journey into a single panning shot that spanned from London to Inner Mongolia. And um, it was almost like constructing or putting a camera on a conveyor belt that spanned those two worlds. Um, because really that's what the world is. It's a giant um, mechanised conveyor belt of production. Um, that ends in a in a city like this one and begins its life in a in a hole in the ground like the one we discovered in in Mongolia. Um, so the film tells that story of the of the global machine. Um, but then we also produced a series of artifacts that would sit with that film, which were these radioactive vases um, that are made from the toxic mud beside. Um, the refinery that is fueled by the, the the material that comes out of this rare earth mineral mine, and um, it, it produces this ten kilometer in scale black lake, um, which is currently um, in a Greenpeace lab being tested. It has high levels of radioactivity, extraordinary amounts of heavy metals, um, and it's really the literal shadow of our contemporary tech gadgets. Um, so we made a series of vases from this mud. Um, each vase is scaled um, according to the amount of waste produced in the production of um, a single tech objects. So there's a smartphone vase, there's a laptop vase, and there's a vase um, made from the amount of toxic waste generated in the production of a Prius um, electric car battery. Um, so the idea is that they come back to London, these vases sit next to the object of technology from which they're made, um, and you have the positive and the negative, the solid and the void, um, the gleaming, luminous piece of technology and the shadow, the literal shadow that sit next to it. Um, and it's really about trying to talk about um, the way that we should understand um, a gadget within um, the network that produces it. Mm -hmm. um, and perhaps that means that we might design them differently. You know, perhaps that means that we can actually think about product design as a form of landscape design mm -hmm. and that we make the iPhone 7 um, not thin enough so that it slides in and out of your pocket effectively, but we make design decisions about it that set in motion positive effects um, somewhere down along the supply chain. Mm -hmm. Well, that, that's exactly where uh, I would like us to go now, which is um, going back a little bit to what you talk about, uh, not not producing uh, a form of guilt in a sort of almost a religious uh, uh, manner, a very uh, moralizing reading of it. But uh, also, I, I think, and tell me what you think about that, but 
uh, if we think of a photographer who has uh, uh, at, at first glance, and I insist at first glance, a similar approach, uh, Edward Bertinsky, uh, uh, I always find his discourse, uh, so he takes those incre incredible pictures of like uh, mm. of uh, site manufactured landscapes to use his, his own uh, his own words. Mm. Uh, but I always, I always found his discourse extremely frustrating in in how uh, uh, he he does say, "Oh, look, uh, those those landscapes are are beautiful and terrifying." Um, but it's not about guilt. It's not about moralizing. It's not about. Uh, um, it's it's more, uh, and I mean, he, he kind of stop it there, and and uh, and uh, I, I find I find it I find it very problematic not to go to the next step, which is to say, okay, let's not moralize it, but let's let's have a critical approach to it, and that's, I think that's where the designer comes in. So, and and something we haven't talked about yet is the fact that you're bringing students in architecture uh, there and a few other people as well, so they are actually projects projects uh, design after after those expeditions so could you tell us about that yeah i mean we we, we do more than just bear witness to these territories mm -hmm. right i mean that's been the model of ecological activism for the last couple of decades is that you you seek out these sites like the toxic lake you photograph them you document them you hang a banner outside of them um, you show the world the polar bear drifting on the melting iceberg or the penguin covered in oil. And the assumption is that once the world realizes, once they see the Batinsky photograph, they go, they're horrified and they change their action. They don't drive the SUV. They don't turn the heating on in, in, in the spring instead of putting a jumper on. And it's bullshit. It doesn't work, does it? Like it's, it's proven that um, it has no real substantial effect on the way that we operate. Um, Cause that's, um, uh, it's not the way that um, contemporary models of um, activism is actually starting to work anymore, that they're looking for alternative ways to operate. And I think that's about the generation of counter-narrative. It's not just about describing these conditions as they are and revealing them. It's actually about um, positioning them within new narratives of alternative possibilities. So we do actually go out to these territories and we do document them, but... We talk about our work as being somewhere between the documentary and the fiction. Um, and a critical part of that is that we actually look at alternative ways of relating to these territories. Um, I think Botinsky's work is about the aestheticization of these territories um, that renders them visible um, in a way that perhaps they aren't. And again, but it, again, it's this model of bearing witness. Whereas what we try and do as designers um, is actually make work that thinks about the way that you could actually relate to them in, in new ways and actually kind of be productive within these contexts. Um, so we take with us on these expeditions a, a cast and crew of um, practitioners from all different sorts of disciplines. So we, we take a photographer, a filmmaker, embedded writers, um, depending on the work that we want to produce or the particular subject matter that we're dealing with on that expedition, we'll take um, uh, a graphic novelist, an illustrator or a performance artist or a material scientist um, or a biologist um, because you know, obviously the, the issues that we're dealing with are so far-ranging in scale, uh, both the disciplinary scale but also um, a logistical and territorial scale that um, in order to 
productively work in these spaces, we need to to have a whole series of invo- informed collaborators. Um, so it's kind of like a traveling circus um, of all these different sorts of people that we put in these contexts and then we work with to actually generate stories and work that are going to um, position us in new relationships to them. Um, so um, there is a, a, a journalistic story that, that comes with it. And so we, we did a series of pieces with the BBC and The Guardian, for instance, based on this China trip, which was about a pretty straight news story of revealing um, these toxic landscapes that are produced from our gadgets. But we also then did this um, this series of vases um, which use practices from um, uh, craft and, and the art world and the design world to um, actually ask different kinds of questions. And we're now also doing um, a fiction film um, which is uh, taking the same sort of footage um, that we've taken from each one of these sites but positioning it within a, um, a science fictional narrative to try and think about the ways that we might deal with this differently. So what does it mean to actually start to imagine speculative devices whose only role is to actually construct um, particular kind of supply chains, right? Um, It's interesting to think about the ways that you can actually, as a designer, with armed with a knowledge of these territories, um, armed with a knowledge of these networks, you can actually start to design within them. So no longer thinking about architecture as a practice that creates um, buildings on singular sites, but um, an architectural practice that's about constructing stories and fictions um, that are imagining new possible ways of relating to these to these conditions, but also um, designing networks and designing new kinds of systems um, and new kinds of infrastructures that actually work with and within these conditions. Um, so architects, architectures that have multiple sites, architectures that are based purely in the world of strategy or policy, um, architecture that um, uh, might locate itself within the smallest of circuit boards in a piece of technology, but it's actually um, a large-scale territorial project that, that finds its ultimate form um, at the scale of the circuit board. So I think there's all these different ways that we can actually um, create new types of projects um, within um, this world that we're investigating with unknown fields um, that go far beyond just taking a photograph of it and putting mm-hmm. it online. Well, and fiction is particularly interesting in insofar that uh, it precisely avoids the, the sort of uh, the sort of uh, uh, the, the the polar bear uh, on, on its yeah. on its drifting uh, 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 drifting iceberg uh, paradigm, uh, and I think we we the, on we had a few conversations on this program in how how uh, fiction and science fiction in particular has has can have a tremendous political implications in 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 their in what they pretend to be a sort of uh, avoiding of those questions when actually it very much uh, problematize them and i think that's very important in in when architecture is concerned because 
too many times uh, we also see people trying to fi find solutions to problems and uh, and uh, the, pro the, the the concept of solution is extremely problematic insofar that uh, it will give itself the means to reach this this uh, solution and therefore by 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 taking those means uh, creates creates new problem without without really being aware of it whereas fiction creates problem but it, it is exactly what the essence is right of fiction yeah i mean i i think of um a lot of the work that comes out of the unknown fields expeditions um either in my own speculative futures work or in the work of um the students that 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 come along with us on these mm. trips or the collaborative work that we develop um as a form of um uh, extrapolating or exaggerating the present right mm. so we go out to these to these places where we see um uh, the consequence of our um dreams of an urban future playing out and we extrapolate those conditions into possible scenarios um and we do so i think in, in for two reasons like one is that you can through an act of storytelling you can cut through some of the complexities of these conditions and reveal them um in a way that they um can't be seen otherwise um uh there's a form of kind of um you know the phrases like system storytelling or um uh describing through fiction these conditions which are ever present um which reveal them in new ways um but there's also then the exaggeration of those conditions through fiction to actually project um alternatives for how we might um start to relate to them or design with them and fiction becomes extraordinarily powerful in this context because it's really the way our culture shares and disseminates ideas right like we all speak fluently through the medium of a story you know like um we all you know i've read a bedtime story as we're growing up or get sat in front of a series of cartoons like we have a fluency um in these fictional mediums um film narrative comics um uh which um is kind of cross-generational and cross-cultural um and for the most part that's the way that we share and disseminate ideas so um it seems um bizarre that architects or special practitioners don't co-opt those mediums more often um to actually disseminate ideas that are fundamental to the way that we operate and exist in 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 cities and spaces um but that so often get lost within the rhetoric of the discipline or within the niche um worlds that architects so typically occupy the um to actually present them through fiction and story um opens up these really urgent discussions and propositions and speculations of possible new worlds that we can start to imagine from these contexts um to much more general audiences um public audiences that um can be much more active agents in shaping their own futures um as opposed to being um passively lying in wait in line for the next iphone to come out you mm -hmm. know um so fiction is a way of um reaching people with these ideas that normally wouldn't um have access to them um and hopefully that's 
an enabling act that creates much more active um, agents in the creation of their own futures. Um, so I think that the fiction project becomes really fundamental um, as an act for um, you know an expanded model of what the architect could be. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and uh, we talked uh, we talked about fiction, but we can even be more specific about what what we usually call science fiction <laughs> and how so far we've been talking about uh, what I could call the, the, the chrono geography of, uh, of, uh, of a product, of a technology. But we can also talk about the sort of, uh, a lot of neologisms, but uh, the, the, the chrono methodi- methodical uh, aspect of a project insofar as that... Um, You you told me you're particularly interested in how a technology leaves the the military industrial complex and mm-hmm. sort of mm-hmm. disseminates within the within the the, the sort of uh, uh, civil uh, uh, world, so to speak, civil realms. Uh, with I think something that that's never to be missed with always uh, this sort of uh, militarized essence still contained very much within this technology and I think that's that's something that once we forget it we're we're doomed uh, but so that that drives us to a few projects you've been doing uh, in particular uh, both in the realms of science fiction but also in the realms of uh, uh, not sure how to call that but maybe uh, artistic speculations mm-hmm. or uh, and, and in particular some work with uh, with drones Uh, that you could tell us about, with the, the, the most recent one being, it uh, uh, ought to be noted, uh, uh, an orchestra with uh, John Kale, uh, um, uh, where where you had uh, uh, John Kale, so from most most known for the Velvet Underground, uh, uh, who was improvising on stage with uh, <coughs> with a few drones. Uh, uh, Flying around with some some speakers in some of them and some others, being, uh, having a, a try. I mean, with with maybe the idea that drones could start to improvise as well. Mm. It's starting to be a very long question. So, I mean, I mean can, can can you maybe just describe uh, this aspect of your work for us? Yeah, I mean, like it's a good uh, example to talk about how some of the expedition work um, evolves and becomes a series of speculative practices and scenarios. Um, Uh, I mean, the drone uh, projects emerged out of a number of um, uh, investigations that that we've done across the years. We, we visited a series of um, military bases in the U.S. on a on a on an expedition a few years ago, from which um, drone operators are controlling um, these remote. Um, Uh, aircraft in distant landscapes you know it's another way that um, one city connects to another across the other side of the planet Um, but also in the China expedition we visited a series of factories where the other end of the the drone market um, the autonomous uh, or controlled quadcoppers uh, being created and made so DGI is the world's largest um, uh, quadcopter manufacturer Um, And what we're seeing so there is there's the same that just uh, uh, incorporated within their drones uh, the fact of not being able to fly uh, at 
uh, in the vicinity vicinity yeah. of the White House. They incorporated no fly zones yeah. into their into this um, hardwired into their software programming, which is really interesting. Um, but what we see there with those two sites is the two ends of the drone discussion. One is um, drones caught within the military industrialized complex, these terrorizing machines that allow um, someone to remotely drop bombs on someone else in a distant part of the world. Um, and the consumer drone um, that sits underneath the Christmas tree last Christmas was supposed to be the Christmas of the drone, where every kid uh, or every big kid um, was getting a DJI drone underneath their Christmas tree. Um, uh, and what you see there is the emergence of a technology which is just on the edge of becoming democratized. Right. So the, the dominant discourse around drones at the moment is rightfully one of um, uh, sanctioned murder, um, and remote surveillance, um, and it's caught within this militarized discourse. But just like you know, most technology transfer lines, um, eventually that tech filters down to the consumer market, and that's when you see other types of things occur, right? We saw that happen with the internet you know, that began as a... Um, as a military's construct in some form. We saw that happening with the personal computer. Um, but it's not until those technologies become democratized that you see alternative applications for them. So um, the core of our interest um, is really in the global and urban implications of emerging technologies. Then um, the ubiquity of the cheap, accessible, consumer, democratized drone um, is really fundamental to that investigation. So... Um, I've been doing a series of drone-based works now um, for a few years that have been exploring the alternative cultural applications of drone technologies. Um, if we move on from the discussion of them as militarized objects, then what else can be they, they be used for? How can they be repurposed? How can they be reimagined by an army of um, civilians or consumers that, mm. that, that get their hands on them? You even got into trouble because of that, right? Yeah, well, we did. The, the first project um, was, again, based on an expedition um, that we'd done um, through some states in the Middle East just, just after the Arab Spring where we saw um, communities were using kind of network technologies to organize at a scale um, uh, large enough to overthrow governments. Um, we saw the governments then you know, shut down those networks and, and then other kind of ground-based networks start to emerge to, to continue um, uh, organizing um, and we developed a, a project called Electronic Countermeasures which is an autonomous drone flock that has on board um, a series of Wi-Fi routers that would broadcast uh, a kind of a pirate internet or a, or a pirate file sharing network so it was like a flying Napster or an aerial pirate bay um, that could be um, logged on to by, by people on the ground and they can upload files and share information um, uh, within a drone network that's completely autonomous. Um, and we've performed that in a number of different places and um, have been held um, at various borders trying to come in with suitcases full of drones, um, uh, um, most notably you know, coming back into London just before the London Olympics actually where they, they held us and put us on terrorist watch lists and things like that um, uh, which is quite um, uh, intriguing um, because really the technology we were using was, was um, hobbyist technology um, I mean that's the extraordinary thing about these drone projects is that um, 
the the tech is so cheap and accessible now it's really extraordinary and that project kind of happened just before um the wave of restrictions and um the, you know, the CIA getting involved in in um what drones can do and where you can fly them and things like that so people didn't really know what to make of them at the time mm -hmm. so um, at the we, same time, then there was ground ground air missiles uh, set up on roof of like civil buildings. In, exactly, in London. exactly. Um, it was an extraordinary moment, and we um, yeah, got got caught uh, in those conversations, coming in with a suitcase full of um, of strange tech that they hadn't seen. Um, but that 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 work has evolved in in a number of different incarnations, and um, most recently, we've developed the drone orchestra with John Cale, where. We were looking at um, again, if you know what what the what a drone could be as a cultural object. Um, so we were interested in a collaboration with John and the Velvet Underground um, and his history, because he began in the early days with Dream Syndicate and things like that, um, uh, doing things like tuning their instruments to the frequency of refrigerator motors and stuff like that. And you know, at the time in the late fifties, early sixties, the refrigerator was this piece of technology that was redefining um, uh, domestic space and gender roles and things like that. Um, and they talked about it as the frequency or the sound of a, of a new generation. So all their songs were based on those frequencies and took samples from those technologies. And my interest in the drone is to say that, you know, it's really the, the potentially it's the defining technology of a new generation. Um, and the sound then of the drone propeller, that ubiquitous buzz and mm -hmm. hum. That gives the names to the... That gives the name technology. to the drone. Um, uh, you know, that is the sound for an emerging generation. So um, John um, and his band started to play along with the sounds of our family of, of different scale drones, each that produced their own kind of frequency and note. Um, and we mounted on board these drones a series of um, uh, speakers so that the band would actually be playing through um, the drone network almost like your surround sound system in your living room you know becoming mobile and flying through the air so it was an immersive um, performance um, that that took the stage took the band off the stage and distributed and threw it around the space of the Barbican Theatre in London um, and each drone was decorated um, with paraphernalia that um, I'd collected from um, an expedition through China through the wholesale market. So one drone was, I called the Harajuku drone, which was covered in um, 10,000 phone charms in imagining what a drone is um, if it was decorated by a Japanese teenager. Um, in the same way they decorate their mobile phones, we could decorate drones if they become kind of familiars and, and objects of technology which are um, uh, you know ubiquitous and and loved um, there was the the tribal drone which was covered in feathers it was always, almost like it was rescued from the mosh pits of an outdoor music festival like Glastonbury or Lollapalooza or something um, uh, there was kind of the goth drone um, there were drones imagined as manifestations of various subcultures. There was drones covered in graffiti um, that were thought of as um, almost like cancel infrastructure that just like the 80s subway car um, has been co-opted by um, you know, hooded teenagers and spraying their tags all over them. So it became this strange family of near-future creatures um, 
that were drifting through the air broadcasting um, this new soundscape to an imaginary city, mm-hmm. um, a new city of drones. Uh, something you mentioned in uh, in the conversation that was filmed uh, that you had with John Kell uh, in the sort of making off of the of this um, of this orchestra that I, I will obviously associate to the page of the of the podcast um, is uh, is what you call the misbehavior the potential misbehavior of the drone. I think that's particularly interesting because. Uh, if we go back to science fiction, we have all kind of this misbehavior ending as, uh, uh, I don't know, the, the, the Earth take over by the machines and the technology. But uh, uh, it seems like we rarely see it almost in the, in the exact inverse way and recognize the, the sort of uh, militarized, deeply human essence of this technology and somehow we don't necessarily want to see the emancipation of this technology from this from this militarized essence so uh, i'm wondering i'm wondering if we can maybe uh, uh, conclude this conversation by reflecting a little bit about that and how what, what is what is the emancipation of the drone from the sort of uh, uh, system that kind of created it and and i think i think as as a sort of uh, uh, as a sort of design principle i it's it's the only uh, wishable thing we could do is that every time we 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 create a system, we need to create the anomaly in the system. Otherwise, it's uh, we end up with a sort of a, a very uh, rational and 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 therefore militarized uh, uh, scheme that uh, I, I I feel needs to incorporate its own contradiction within itself, isn't it? Hmm. It's funny. There's a Lots of people um, tell stories of the the drones that they've purchased, um, which, as I said, have, have been made on a supply ch- on a conveyor belt in China somewhere. There's a setting that you can you set the drone to uh, you set its home point so that if any at any point it loses its radio signal with your home base that's you know, telling it where to go, um, it returns home so you don't lose it. Um, and a lot of people have found that somehow. Uh, there's a certain point or a certain way that the drone resets itself and its home signal becomes the point where it was first turned on for the very first time, which inevitably is the factory in China where it where it's started its life. So a lot of people have these um, stories of losing their drone because um, they're flying with it in their local park and then all of a sudden it loses signal and then just heads in the direction of China. Um, and it's almost like the drone just you know gives up and and returns home, but it's just a it's just a fault in the program. Go back to the source. <laughs> um, exactly. So, but I love that it gives you know that little kind of glitch can be described almost um, as a sort of personality. You know, like it's the it's the it's the the lost drone kind of um, searching for home, um, going back to where where it was born. Um, there's a way that. Um, all of these technologies are built from you know, just, just very crude base programming and algorithms, right? Um, uh, but how can we find within that programming spaces for other kind of cultural relationships? Um, that was part of our interest in the drone work and something we're working on now in future iterations of the drone orchestra is how you can actually tamper with and play with um, the programming that designates its root, its root to allow for um, 
what we were doing was you know giving finding a way to give the drones a kind of swagger you know like we were we were creating um some of the drones that were off balance that would give them particular behaviors or characters or personalities um that we normally wouldn't associate with them um and i think that's um you know it's a fun kind of project to start to do with these with these small scale domesticated drones um but it suggests um much larger implications for the city you know in the in the smart city what we talk about is the smart city like i mean it's something that I'm really interested in, in the moment at the at the moment is that all of these systems that we're talking about um are actually really defining urban experiences now. You know, we used to think of a city of, as being this series of accidents and um, uh, strange coincidences and juxtapositions, and that defined the complexity and richness of urban experience. But so much of what we think of as um, the chaos of, of cities is actually now defined by you know, very similar um uh, algorithms that we that we'd see in in uh, the mechanics of drone flight and and um, GPS behaviors, you know, like traffic management systems, um, bus systems, um, uh, financial networks, um, uh, you know, CCTV surveillance. All these things um, are actually now fundamental in shaping urban experience. You know, the power grid. Um, uh, all, all these things are actually built from um, these rule-based algorithms. Um, and what does that mean for architects and designers to conceive of these cities? You know, like we um, we now socially relate through these systems. Um, uh, urban experience is mediated through these systems, the way we move through cities, the way cities are even constructed or thought of. Um, as now this kind of hybridized digital and physical space are all um, based on um, these rules which come out of the, the um, uh, military development buckets that you're talking about. Um, and I think it's really fundamentally changing what architects and designers um, should be doing at the scale of the city. Um, and we should be engaging with these systems in the same way that we engage with the discourses of public space um, and the physical infrastructure of cities in the last century, right? Like we should be um, thinking of these things as being um, the fundamental ingredient to the production of urban experience. Um, because for the most part, um, the built infrastructure of cities um, no longer plays the role that it, that it once did. Um, so I think that's kind of the next phase of a lot of this work is, is looking at um, uh, the possibilities of um, these technologies within the city and um, looking at alternative ways that they can operate um, and how we can find um, spaces between them and within them and how we, we can actually engineer them to generate um, some kind of rich complex set of urban experiences as opposed to them kind of eradicating that away mm -hmm. well Liam thank you very much I, th I think uh, since we since we've been talking about uh, fiction as a sort of uh, uh, something to turn to let's say and uh, uh, maybe we should end this conversation with uh, an image a, a, fiction, a fictitious image from uh, back to the early 90s or late 80s if i'm if i'm not wrong 
that you evoke yourself in your conversation with John Kell. It's, it's the city of Laputa, the Miyazaki's uh, <laughs> castle in the sky. <laughs> that that seems to be like one of the <laughs> one of the <laughs> the never the drone that never goes back to the ground, right? That's the image that you wanted to. Yeah, it's also. Um, uh, I, I, lo I love the, um, the the robot from Laputa that um, that has it um, that, that's covered in moss, mm. and there's a little bird that nests in its in its in its mossy hair and head, um, and it talks to the interrelationship between the autonomous technology and, and the, the the natural systems and landscapes in which those technologies play out, um, and I think that's. The moment that we're in, right? Um, it's, you know, it's thoroughly anthropocenic, mm -hmm. um, Laputa, um, and I think it's interesting to start to explore as designers what this context of the Anthropocene actually means, right? Where we're existing within um, uh, a planetary-scaled computational mechanism, um, and just like um, the little bird that that flits around um, the shoulders of the robot. Um, you know, we too uh, kind of dance in and around these autonomous um, mechanized infrastructural systems. Um, so I think there's a real question about what our agency is within them and equally what the agency of those systems are. Um, uh, so it's, it's, it's a good um, analogy to end on because I think we're, you know, we're, we're that little bird <laughs> sitting on the shoulder of the robot. Great. Well, I, I could not miss the chance to finish one of those many archipelago conversations with, uh, with the Miyazaki uh, vision. So thank you so much, Liam. <laughs> yeah, thanks for the chat.